You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 57, The Infernal Machine. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I should remind you that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging $2 a month to support the show on Patreon.com. There will be a link in the episode description if you're interested. Anyway, we left off last time in the summer of 1800. Napoleon was fresh from his great triumph at Marengo. A truce now existed between French and Austrian forces in Italy, which would soon be extended to Germany in the wake of General Moreau's victory at the Battle of Hochstadt. Napoleon hoped this ceasefire would provide a framework for a permanent peace treaty with the Habsburgs. He told his generals, quote, My friends, we have conquered peace. End quote. With his goals achieved, the first consul returned to Paris. He was eager to reassert his authority over the government, which some politicians had begun to question during his absence. The doubters and would-be rivals had been silenced by the magnitude of the victory at Marengo, and the hope that peace would soon follow. The consulate regime was clearly trending towards stability and legitimacy, even if there was still a long road to travel before we might call the government secure. There was no longer any significant opposition to Bonaparte within the circles of power, at least none that dared assert itself. Napoleon's rivals were sidelined, and his popularity among the people soared to unprecedented new heights. But there were still those in France who sought his downfall and the destruction of the new regime. Lacking popular support, and unable to express their opposition through official channels, dedicated opponents of the government went underground. Some were biding their time, trying to keep their ideas alive until one day there might be an opening for them to participate in formal politics once again. But others began to contemplate more extreme methods, methods which today would probably be labeled terrorism. These dissidents came from both ends of the political spectrum, radical republicans who found the new regime too authoritarian and elitist, and hardcore royalists who rejected Napoleon's overtures for political reconciliation and would not rest until France had a king once more. Their struggles would not be carried out on the floor of the legislature or the salons of the powerful, but in the back rooms of cafes and shabby clubhouses, where bribes and secrets carried far more weight than eloquent speeches or sound policy. This world of conspiracy was a frightening, alien place for most people, but it was a perfect natural habitat for Napoleon's feared minister of police, Joseph Fouché. Very little happened in Paris without Fouché's knowledge. He had spies and informants everywhere. Even among the smallest, most dedicated dissident cells, there was usually at least one person on Fouché's payroll. 
To give you some idea of the scale of this network, the Ministry of Police spent 100,000 francs a year on bribes, for the palace staff alone. That's somewhere just over half a million dollars in today's money. Fouché used his influence to ensure suspected agitators were fired from their jobs and unable to find new work, leaving many no choice but to enter his service as informers. You almost have to admire the diabolical genius of this system. But even with his considerable abilities and resources, Fouché had his work cut out for him. There were thousands of people all over France who were unsatisfied with the government, thousands of potential recruits to conspiracies against the consulate. Tumultuous years of war and revolution had given many of these people experience in clandestine political organizing, armaments, and explosives. There were many parts of rural France where the hand of the state was still very weak. In western France, which had once been the heartland of the counter-revolutionary Vendée Rebellion, you could still find armed bands of royalists hiding out in remote parts of the countryside. In the south and center of the country, banditry was so out of control that government couriers were banned from traveling the roads without an armed escort of at least four soldiers. Royalist opponents of the regime had a lot of outside help. With control of the seas, the British Navy ran guns, ammunition, and money into the eager hands of right-wing counter-revolutionaries in western France. Men who had served as officers in the Vendée rebel armies received salaries at the same rate as British officers of equivalent rank, paid directly from London, whether they were in the field, in exile in Britain, or living underground. The royalist resistance to the regime was nothing to sneeze at but it was still a far cry from the heyday of the counter-revolution in the mid-1790s. At the height of the war in the Vendée, the reactionaries were able to maintain conventional standing armies tens of thousands strong, complete with uniforms, professional support staff, and even artillery. But by 1798, a combination of Republican success on the battlefield, ruthless counterinsurgency tactics, and generous amnesties had reduced this formidable movement to nothing more than small, scattered bands of guerrillas, many of whom blurred the lines between legitimate resistance and indiscriminate banditry as they struggled to eke out an existence in the most remote pockets of western France. The Vendée Rebellion was practically dead. A great conflagration had torn across western France, but all that remained by 1800 were a few dying embers. However, anyone could see that as long as France had a government which insisted on strong centralized rule, heavy taxation, and conscription, and remained hostile to the Catholic Church and the old social order, the resentment which drove the original rebellion would persist, and there would always be the chance that those embers might grow into another inferno. The émigrés and their British allies certainly looked forward to such a day and did all they could to bring it about. From London, the coup of 18 Brumaire looked like a good opportunity. There was inevitable instability and uncertainty which comes with any sudden, violent change in government, and the Republican armies were distracted fighting the Austrians. And that is why, in early 1800, a small boat landed on the shores of Brittany in northwestern France. It carried a group of men native to the province, aristocrats whose families had ruled over this land before the revolution. 
all of them had joined the rebel armies and fought bitterly to preserve their birthright, before going into exile in England. Now they were returning to their native land to restart the struggle. The party was led by 29-year-old Georges Cadudal. He was practically a giant by the standards of the time, somewhere around 5 foot 10, or 1.75 meters, with a stocky, muscular build. During the rebellion, he had distinguished himself as one of the most tireless and capable royalist commanders. Fittingly, the name Cadudal means something like warrior returning to battle in the Breton language. To his fellow counter-revolutionaries, Cadudal was commander-in-chief of all royalist forces in Brittany, although it was unclear who had the authority to confer this title. To the Republicans, he was the most wanted man in France. Backed by British gold, the Royalists and the Coalition hoped this little group would form the nucleus of a revitalized counter-revolutionary movement in western France. However, they had barely begun their work when the Republican victories at Marengo and Hochstadt turned the war decisively in France's favor. If there had ever been an opportunity for a successful rebellion in the West, that window was now closed. Cadudal and his men could have returned to England to wait for better prospects, but they came to France to fight and would not leave until they had struck a blow against Napoleon. Instead, they went underground. If they couldn't engage the Republicans in open battle, they would do it in the cloak-and-dagger world of conspiracy. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. In many ways, their counterparts on the far left were facing even longer odds. Unlike the Royalists, radical Jacobin plotters had no outside support from foreign powers. Their base of support, the urban, lower, and middle classes, was mostly pretty content with Bonaparte's regime, or at least nowhere near dissatisfied enough to consider stepping outside the law. But there was a hard core of radical republicans who could not reconcile themselves to the regime, even with Napoleon ascendant and the public mostly on his side. Police Minister Fouché described the situation, quote, Far from disarming the Republican malcontents, decisive success exasperated them more and more. Bonaparte created bitter enemies by his absolutist and military habits. End quote. Just like the Royalists, the far left could feel their slim chance of achieving power slipping away. Bonaparte's popularity continued to grow. The consulate regime looked more stable with each passing day. In their secret meetings and hidden clubhouses, these dissidents worried their marginalization and isolation would worsen and become permanent. All over France, dozens of radical agitators, on both the left and the right, came to the same conclusion. Something drastic had to be done quickly, 
before the first consul brought the entire country under his spell and his regime became totally unassailable. They would have to kill Napoleon Bonaparte. It's hard to describe these conspiracies with any detail or certainty. By definition, they were shrouded in secrecy to all but a few participants, many of whom were executed before they had a chance to record their side of the story. There's also the question of police involvement. All of the various police forces in France were known to use informants and undercover operatives as agents provocateur, encouraging dissidents to engage in criminal acts for which they could be arrested. This sometimes verged on what we today would probably label entrapment. So, many of the plots against Napoleon were dreamed up at Fouché's headquarters, and managed by the police from the very beginning. Others may have been authentic at some point, but were quickly penetrated by police spies, and monitored and allowed to continue as long as necessary for intelligence-gathering purposes, before being rolled up. But even taking into account the large number of plots which were either invented or encouraged by the police, there was a stunning number of conspiracies against Napoleon in the months after Marengo, probably somewhere around a half-dozen that you might call serious, and many more which fizzled out or were broken up in their preliminary stages. A lot of these plots centered on theaters. Napoleon was an avid patron of operas, plays, and orchestras, Theaters were among the few public spaces he reliably entered which were not tightly controlled. And, of course, the prospect of doing the deed in front of an audience surely appeals to the type of person who gets drawn into an assassination plot. In one conspiracy, a group of Jacobins stole a gendarme uniform, intending to use it to infiltrate Napoleon's private box at the famous Comédie Française and kill the First Consul but they were betrayed before any concrete plans could be made. Around the same time, a different cell of left-wing radicals was plotting an assault on Malmaison, Napoleon's country estate just outside Paris, but they too were thwarted in the early planning stages. The most infamous Jacobin plot of this period was the so-called Dagger Conspiracy of Autumn 1800. The would-be assassins hoped to ambush Napoleon on his way back from the opera, and, as you could probably guess, stab him to death with daggers, an intentional reference to the murder of Julius Caesar, who was killed in a similar manner by men who believed he had become a tyrant. The dagger conspiracy is probably the best known of these left-wing plots against Bonaparte, because it came relatively close to fruition, and because it included some relatively prominent people. There was a famous left-wing pamphleteer, Bernard Medge, who Fouché considered one of the most dangerous Jacobins in France, Dominique de Méville, who had served on the staff of the Committee of Public Safety during the Terror, and several prominent artists, including Giuseppe Ceracchi, one of the most celebrated sculptors of the day. Ironically, while he plotted Napoleon's murder, there was an unfinished bust of the First Consul sitting in Ceracchi's workshop. Not so long ago, he had admired Bonaparte, but that love curdled into hatred after the coup of Brumaire. This motley crew of disaffected idealists laid their plans, purchased weapons, and set a date, 18 Vendémiaire, that's October 10th to us, when they knew Napoleon would be attending a performance of The Horatii, an opera by Antonio Salieri. That evening, the would-be assassins got into position and were arrested almost immediately. 
All over the city, associates of the plotters and other suspected left-wing agitators were detained as well. This was all orchestrated. The police knew exactly when and where to expect them. That's because there was a police spy right at the heart of the plot, a man named Arel, about whom we know almost nothing, but who Fouché himself later admitted was on the police payroll. The authorities claimed Arel came to them once the plot was already underway, and confessed everything, to save himself and earn a reward. However, it's been speculated that Arel had been working for the police much longer than he or the authorities admitted, and that he himself instigated the plot, under Fouché's instruction, to provide an excuse to crack down on Jacobin dissidents. If this was the case, it's possible Napoleon himself wasn't even aware. Fouché was involved in a bureaucratic power struggle with Lucien Bonaparte for control over the state security apparatus. If Fouché could claim to have foiled an assassination attempt against the First Consul, that certainly would have helped his position. These types of schemes certainly weren't beneath a devious man like Fouché. All of these arrests failed to make much of a dent. When one plot was broken up, another formed in its place. As Fouché put it, Quote, one frustrated conspiracy was quickly followed by another. How, indeed, could it be possible to restrain for any length of time men of turbulent character and unconquerable fanaticism, especially when exposed to a condition of private distress so well calculated to inflame them? It is with such instruments that conspiracies are formed and fomented. End quote. I find that passage interesting because we know Fouché himself was responsible for creating that condition of private distress, which, he admits, encouraged political radicals to plot against the government. The most charitable interpretation is that Fouché believed these men were dangerous, and so manufactured scenarios in which those disposed to violence could be arrested as quickly and safely as possible. A more cynical interpretation is that Fouché knew his power depended on the fear of shadowy plots and assassins, and so he worked to produce a steady stream of conspiracies, which justified his powers and methods. These foiled plots were good for Bonaparte, too. As Fouché himself put it, quote, Every government of recent origin generally profits by the occasion of danger, either to justify or extend its power. To have escaped conspiracy is sufficient grounds for acquiring more energy and vigor. End quote. Whether or not he was aware of Fouché's antics, Bonaparte certainly took advantage of the fear caused by these plots. He suspended habeas corpus and ordered the creation of a special military tribunal to try political conspiracy cases outside the regular court system. There was little constitutional justification for this move but given the circumstances, few questioned it. It should be said that these were not kangaroo courts. A majority of the defendants in the Dagger conspiracy trials were actually acquitted. Only the four men who had actually gone to the ambush site carrying daggers were convicted. Still, military tribunals for civilian defendants are a classic hallmark of authoritarianism and the way Bonaparte had sidestepped the Constitution was a bad sign for the rule of law in France. Fear of terrorism, and the instability it might bring, was enough to silence any public outrage. 
But the most dangerous plots of this period still had yet to be revealed. The members of the Dagger Conspiracy were relatively well-heeled, mostly artists and intellectuals. Not long after they were arrested, they were replaced by a new set of left-wing plotters. These men came from lower social strata. They may have lacked the dramatic flair of the Dagger Conspiracy, but they made up for it with practical skill. The ringleader was a man named Chevalier, who Fouché described as, quote, a man of delirious republicanism and atrocious spirit, end quote. We don't know much about Chevalier, but apparently during the War of the First Coalition, he had worked at an armory, storing and preparing munitions for the artillery. He knew a lot more about explosives than your average civilian, and he intended to apply this knowledge to kill Bonaparte. Working in secret with his fellow Jacobins, Chevalier sketched out blueprints for a weapon that would come to be known as the Infernal Machine, a steel-reinforced barrel full of nails and grapeshot packed around a core of gunpowder. In late October, the Jacobins produced a working prototype and set it off in an abandoned abbey. Apparently the machine was so loud and destructive that several of the plotters fled the building. Those who remained to survey the results of the blast were horrified by what they'd created. Studying the devastation wrought by the bomb, it was immediately obvious that this was a completely indiscriminate weapon. There was no way to use it against Bonaparte without practically guaranteeing dozens of others would be killed or wounded along with him. Chevalier and his men hated Napoleon, but they were not prepared to go that far to see him killed. They would have to find another way. Unfortunately for the Jacobins, there would be no second plan. Such a large explosion within the city limits of Paris had attracted a lot of attention, and Fouché was soon on their tail. A week later, Chevalier was under arrest. To his credit, he kept his mouth shut, admitting to nothing and naming no names. But most of his co-conspirators were already known to the police, and Fouché didn't need a confession to lock him up. Blueprints and bomb-making materials had been discovered in his apartment. Once again, the public was frightened and outraged, and once again, Fouché's influence grew. But this isn't the last we'll hear of the infernal machine, because something very strange happened in the late fall or early winter of 1800. Chevalier's plan was taken up by another group of dissidents. Not left-wing Jacobins, but far-right counter-revolutionaries. A small group of Georges Cadoudal's Breton royalist officers had arrived in Paris, and began work on an infernal machine of their own. Which begs the question, how did they learn of Chevalier's plan? As the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But even so, working-class Jacobin radicals and aristocratic ultra-royalists make very strange bedfellows. It seems unlikely they would have trusted each other enough to share information, especially with Fouché's informants lurking around every corner. It's certainly possible that the similarity between Cadoudal's plan and Chevalier's plan is simply a coincidence, or that the royalists were inspired by newspaper reports of the Jacobin plot and actually had no inside knowledge of its particulars. It's also possible the royalists had their own spies among the Jacobins, or the police, and learned the details of the plot that way. 
But given the ubiquity of police spies and informants among Parisian dissidents, I don't think we can ignore the possibility that one of Fouché's agents revealed the details of the plot to Cadoudal's men, either intentionally to stoke the conspiracy or unintentionally. Whatever the case, the Breton royalists enlisted allies in Paris and set to work assembling their bomb and planning the attack on Napoleon. The date was set for the third of Niveaux's, or as the fervently Catholic royalists certainly referred to it, Christmas Eve, 1800. Christmas celebrations were still officially discouraged in Republican France, but the 24th was a big day on the city's cultural calendar. A new French-language version of The Creation by Joseph Haydn was set to premiere at the Paris Opera. The Creation was among the most famous pieces of music of the era, and one of France's most celebrated opera singers was coming out of retirement to play the lead. Most importantly for the plotters, Napoleon would be there. They would place the bomb along the route from the palace to the opera, and blow it up as the first consul's carriage drove past. The site chosen for the attack was not far from the Church of saint Roch, where Napoleon had famously defeated the royalist insurgents during their failed uprising on 13 Vendémiaire in 1795, which probably seemed like poetic justice to Cadoudal and his men. The night of the attack, the conspirators hid the bomb in a horse cart, changed into disguises of dirty workmen's clothes, and brought the infernal machine to the appointed place, the Rue Saint-Niquez, near the Tuileries Palace. They must have been anxious, shepherding a gigantic barrel full of 200 pounds of gunpowder plus shrapnel over the crowded, bumpy, cobblestone streets of central Paris, knowing the police might descend on them at any moment and catch them red-handed. But they arrived at the appointed place without incident, and began their final preparations. The bomb was hidden under a pile of gravel, and they pantomimed like they were setting up to repair the road, in case anyone started asking questions about why the cart was stopped so close to the center of the road. They went into a nearby bar for a little liquid courage, then took up their positions. A lookout went to the top of the block to signal when Napoleon's carriage was close so his comrades could light the fuse. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, at the Tuileries Palace, the Bonaparte's evening was already off to an inauspicious start. Napoleon was exhausted and ambivalent about attending the performance. But he believed it was important to be seen at such events, and of course, he really was a fan of music, so he ultimately decided to go. 
the always fashionable Josephine was having a crisis over what to wear. Napoleon waited with their male guests, his old friend General Lon, General Jean-Baptiste Bessier, commander of the guard, and minister of war Lazar Carnot, while the female guests, his sister Caroline, Josephine's daughter Hortense, and one of Napoleon's aides, Jean Rapp, tried to help Josephine get ready. Bonaparte began to worry they would miss the beginning of the performance, and his patience finally ran out. He told the servants he would leave with the male guests, and Josephine, Hortense, Caroline, and Rapp could catch up whenever she was ready. Bonaparte and half the entourage packed into a carriage and left for the opera, and he immediately dozed off. As always, they were escorted by a squad of horsemen from the consular guard. This was partially for security, but partially just to help clear the way through the anarchic, bustling streets of the capital. Josephine and her party left the palace only a few minutes later, also in a carriage, escorted by a handful of consular guard cavalry. By now, the conspirators had finished their drinks and were lying in wait. One of them paid a little girl a handful of pocket change to hold their horse. The nature of the bomb meant that this would be a suicide mission, and none of the plotters were willing to sacrifice themselves. It was an ugly, tragic decision. The bells chimed eight o'clock, and the curtains rose at the Paris Opera, without the first consul or his guests. He had been right to worry about being late. As Bonaparte's carriage turned onto the Rue Saint-Niquez, the royalist plan went wrong. Sources differ, but there was some kind of commotion as the consular guard cleared the way for the carriage. According to some sources, one of the guard troopers actually had to draw his sword and threaten a cab driver to clear the way. In the confusion, the man holding the fuse for the infernal machine missed the signal from the man at the top of the block, and so he didn't light the fuse until the carriage was already in sight, and then took off running, leaving that poor unsuspecting little girl holding the horse. The infernal machine exploded a few minutes after 8 p.m., 20 bars into the overture of the creation. The area immediately around the cart was obliterated. Several dozen buildings on the Rue Saint-Niquez were so badly damaged they had to be condemned. The little girl holding the reins was killed instantly, along with six others who were near the blast. Over a dozen more died later. Over 50 people were injured, some permanently crippled. The perpetrators all escaped totally unharmed. The delay in setting the fuse meant that Bonaparte was well past where Cadudal's men had planned. But the force of the bomb was still powerful enough to lift his carriage up off three of its four wheels. Napoleon was jolted awake, but no one in the carriage was hurt. Fouché would later write that if the fuse had been lit only two seconds earlier, Bonaparte would have been killed. Once his driver regained control of the horses, Napoleon flagged down one of the guardsmen and ordered him to ride back up the street and ensure Josephine was all right. The carriage carrying Josephine, Hortense, Caroline, and Jean Rapp had actually been slightly closer to the explosion, but was outside the main blast radius. The carriage had shaken violently, all its windows shattered, and a piece of glass cut Hortense's hand, but that was the only injury. Napoleon and his entourage had been incredibly lucky. 
the infernal machine exploded during a very narrow window of time in which it was too late to seriously harm Napoleon, but too early to seriously harm Josephine or his stepdaughter or sister. Once he gathered his wits and knew his family was safe, Napoleon ordered his driver to continue to the opera. Even at a time like this, after narrowly escaping a sudden and horrible death, he was still mindful of optics and public perception. Continuing to the opera showed strength. He was not intimidated by his enemies, not even by a near miss. Bonaparte arrived at the opera a few minutes later, took a seat in his personal box, and stayed for the whole performance. His only remark about the bomb was, quote, Those bastards tried to blow me up. End quote. But Napoleon's mind was rarely idle. As he listened to the performance, he was surely reflecting on the horrific experience he'd just survived, who might be responsible, how to catch them, and what to do with them. Meanwhile, the audience below was buzzing with news and rumors of the attack. People in 1800 didn't really have a frame of reference for an event like this. Terrorist tactics as we know them today didn't really evolve until much later in the 19th century. The idea that random innocent civilians might be subjected to brutal violence by civilian dissidents in service of some political agenda was new and horrifying. The Infernal Machine plot is sometimes described as the first modern terrorist attack, but I don't think that's quite accurate. It did have many of the hallmarks of terrorism, the disguised perpetrators, sudden and indiscriminate destruction, and scores of innocent victims. However, Kaidudal's men were not seeking to sow terror. They were assassins, hoping to kill a single man. They just happened to use an incredibly powerful weapon, and didn't care about the extensive collateral damage. Ironically, the public outrage at the attack was immediately directed at the far left. This was unfortunate for the Jacobins, but the confusion was understandable. As you've probably noticed, these types of plots were much more commonly carried out by the radical left. It had barely been a month since the police busted up Chevalier's conspiracy, which was very similar to the attack on the Rue Saint-Niquez. There were plenty of royalist dissidents in France, and everyone knew they were capable of spectacular violence. But they generally stayed in the countryside, near their bases of support. Apparently, even Bonaparte himself was convinced leftists were behind the attack until Fouché was able to prove otherwise. Underneath the calm facade he'd shown at the opera, Napoleon was seething with rage. Not only had he almost been assassinated, members of his family had been endangered. Dozens of innocent people had been killed, in a manner he considered cowardly. He told his ministers, quote, For such an atrocious crime, we must have vengeance like a thunderbolt. Blood must flow. We must shoot as many guilty men as there have been victims. End quote. He was being hyperbolic, but not by much. Under Bonaparte's orders, the police rounded up all the usual suspects. They arrested anyone who was known to have participated in underground politics, or even to have associated too closely with those who did. Over a hundred people were arrested. Ironically, they were mostly Jacobins rather than royalists. Even after Fouché arrested several members of the conspiracy and was able to conclusively prove it was the work of the far right, not the left, 
Napoleon refused to release any of the Jacobin prisoners. After witnessing the destruction of the blast, seeing his own stepdaughter hurt, and coming so close to death, the first consul was no longer willing to turn a blind eye to this shadow world of radical dissent. There was now a zero-tolerance policy for those who worked to overthrow the status quo. These were draconian measures, and arguably unconstitutional, even by the standards of the authoritarian consulate system. But there was no public outcry. People were so appalled by what had happened, and so worried about what might have happened if the man at the center of the political system was suddenly gone, that there was little sympathy for the arrested radicals, and a little discussion about the implications for civil liberties and the rule of law. Napoleon did calm down slightly from his fire-and-brimstone rage immediately after the attack. Most of the detainees were deported, not executed. Two of the men who carried out the attack on the Rue Saint-Niquez were captured by Fouché's agents, convicted, and executed in the spring of 1801. The third escaped, but was so racked with guilt over what he'd done that he dropped out of politics altogether, moved to the United States, and became a priest. Georges Cadudal, the ringleader of the plot, did not take part in the attack, and in fact, was probably not even in Paris when it was carried out. He stuck to his home region in Brittany, where he knew he could rely on networks of supporters to hide him from Bonaparte's wrath, before finally escaping to England once more. This is a big part of the story of how the authoritarian side of Napoleonic France was born. Bonaparte remained paranoid about assassination and kidnapping attempts for the rest of his career, and, in his defense, his enemies never did stop plotting against him despite the heavy hand of the police. In some ways, Napoleon's regime was actually more tolerant of political diversity than previous revolutionary governments. As we've seen in earlier episodes, he really did believe in uniting Frenchmen of all political stripes. At the same time that his police were busy cracking down on the most radical ends of the political spectrum, Napoleon was offering olive branches both to the mainstream left and the mainstream right. For Republicans, he brought back a lot of the old Jacobin civic rituals, which had been de-emphasized under the Directory, in particular the celebration of the fall of the Bastille in 1789. Bastille Day, 1800, was the biggest and most lavish in years. Napoleon kicked off the festivities with a toast, quote, To our sovereign, the people of France, end quote. The radical Jacobins we've been talking about in this episode obviously weren't buying this, but many average Republicans did. To court the conservatives, Napoleon declared expansive amnesties and pardons for imprisoned royalists, and relaxed official hostility towards the Catholic Church. This was nowhere near enough to satisfy men like Georges Cadudal, who would not rest until divine monarchy was restored. But many more moderate royalists were willing to listen. Bonaparte maintained this same basic approach to politics for the rest of his career, relative toleration for all political stances, as long as they accepted the status quo and renounced violence and civil disorder. For anyone who stepped outside these boundaries, there was the iron fist of the law. In Napoleonic France, a person was free to believe whatever his or her conscience dictated, as long as they did nothing to threaten the status quo. 
Napoleon's brush with death on the Rue Saint-Niquez once again brought the question of succession to people's minds. What would have happened if the infernal machine exploded a few seconds earlier? Who would have taken control of the government? Who would command the military? Who would have managed the response to this terrible crime? There were no obvious answers to these questions, and that was a problem. In the best-case scenario, there probably would have been a power struggle between senior generals, politicians, and members of the Bonaparte family. In the worst-case scenario, there may have been a return to open civil conflict. Either way, the much-desired sense of stability which had finally begun to settle over France would almost certainly disappear. Napoleon himself worried a great deal about this possibility. Quote, If I die in four or five years, the clock will be wound and will run. If I die before then, I don't know what will happen. End quote. Napoleon wanted to build a regime with staying power, which would outlast him, but believed that process would not be complete until 1804 at the earliest. He knew that without him, the government was still too fragile and too new to survive. For the second time in only a few months, everyone in France was given an uncomfortable reminder that most of the government's popularity and legitimacy rested on one man that perhaps Napoleon was all that stood between order and anarchy. With that in mind, perhaps it's not surprising that so many people were willing to put aside their reservations and support him, or that they reacted with such fear and anger when his life was threatened. These questions of succession, and of Napoleon's outsized influence, would continue to loom over the consulate, and would be some of the main contributing factors behind its eventual replacement by the Empire. I think we'll leave things there for now. Before we go, I'd like to mention a book that was a huge help in writing this episode, This Dark Business, The Secret War Against Napoleon, by Tim Clayton. If you find these types of cloak-and-dagger stories interesting, you might check it out. Anyway, until next time, thanks for listening. 